we are uh, in Paul's letter to the Christians who were living in Rome. We've been working our way through this letter for the past number of months, and we will uh, wrap it up towards the end of this summer. And we're in this section here from chapters 12 through the end, 12 through 16, where he gives us this series of, of commands. I mean, it is, it's imperative after imperative after imperative. And um, what he's answering here, it's easy if we're just sort of jumping in at this section to just feel like, man, this is nothing but instructions and commands. But if you were working your way straight through the letter, you would have been desperate for him to just tell you what to do because he spends the first 11 chapters doing nothing but drilling deeper and deeper and deeper into God's grace and all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we just instinctively want to say, Paul, just just tell me what to do, though. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. How am I supposed to live in the here and now in light of all that you have done for me in Jesus Christ, in light of the fact that I have been forgiven and, and reconciled and adopted as your child and united to Jesus Christ and made a citizen of heaven? How then do I live right here and right now? Um, how am I to be a, a person who is simultaneously in Jesus Christ and in Boise, Idaho, as the case is for us. That's not what the Romans were asking. They didn't know what Boise, Idaho was. But, um, And what he says is, before we get to any of that, basically, we need to be very, very clear that all of the commands that are given to the Christian are rooted in, first, what God has done for us definitively in Jesus Christ. For those who like grammar, the other way to say it is that the, the indicative always drives the imperative, and the imperative is only ever rooted in the indicative of what God has done. Uh, but that's not to say that the Christian life is completely a backwards-looking life, that the Christian faith is purely a backward-looking faith. Yes, we do look backwards to what God has done for us in time and space and in history in Jesus Christ, especially in His death and resurrection. But it's not just a backwards-looking faith. It's also a forward-looking faith. Uh, We look ahead and we look forward. We live here and now as Christians in this world, in this time, in this particular place, just as much as as we are rooted in what Christ has done, we are also rooted in what He is doing presently and will do in the future. Uh, If you were with us a a few months ago, I guess it was the end of March, One of the elders on our temporary session, a guy named Pat Roach, was with us. He was visiting. He was preaching for us. And he he fast-forwarded for us to this passage. If this passage sounds like, man, did we hear this a couple months ago? The answer is yes, and good job for remembering. Um, But a a particular illustration that he used in that sermon, which really stuck with me, he said said it's not dissimilar to the experience of looking at the stars, And as we look up at the night sky and we see these stars, and in one sense they look so close, and it's such an in-the-moment experience to look up at the night sky and see those stars, the fact is what we're looking at is light that was emitted long, long ago, maybe even thousands of years ago. But it is this light shining from long ago into our present moment. We experience the light right now, but it's as if a past, a past event, a past thing is shining into our present moment. 
And so as we read these commands, we will hear some commands here in this passage. As we read these instructions for the Christian life, it's as if we are seeing the light of Jesus Christ shining into our present. But it's not just shining into our present from the distant past, it's also shining into the present from the future. It's light from both the past and the future simultaneously shining in to our present moment. So with that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you desire for us to know you, that you de desire that so much that you communicate yourself to us. You show us not just instructions for living, but you show us your very heart. Would you help us to see that this morning as we look at this particular passage? Father, would you shape us? Would you minister to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back, this was, I realized something more we did uh, mostly before we had kids, but also before we had uh, smartphones. Uh, my wife and I often, while we were getting ready in the morning, eating our breakfast or whatever, we would turn on the TV just to catch a little bit of the news or catch the weather forecast, and we would like to say, uh, let's see what's going on in the world. That was just the way we said, let's turn on the news. Um, and uh, now, of course, most of us have phones in our pocket, and uh, we have news and social media at our fingertips at all times, which means that at any point in any day, any of us can say, let's see what's going on in the world. And many of us do. We check it quite often, check it very frequently. Um, without, I'll leave the stats out of it at this point because that's not the, the point. But um, at any point on any day, we can see what's going on in the world. And we love to see what's going on in the world because we love to know what's going on, right? It just informs the way we step into the day. It informs the way we get ready. Uh, the weather forecast informs what we should wear. Um, what we see going on in our friends' lives through social media inform how we ought to feel today as I get started. Um, and in a sense, what Paul's saying here in this passage is he's saying, yes, let's do see what's going on in the world. 
Let's check. Uh, let's see how we should prepare, how we should arrange our days, how we should arrange our relationships, how we should feel stepping into this day. Um, but he says, you're not going to find it on your phone. You're not going to find it in the news or on, on, on your social media feed. Um, you'll find it on God's calendar. And this, this is an invitation to take a peek at God's calendar, which, by the way, wouldn't it be significant if at the start of your day you could like take a peek at God's calendar and see, like, well, what is it God's up to today? <laughs> what do, what's on his to-do list? Because, uh, man, if I could see that, that would, really, that would really shape the way I'm stepping into the day. That's what this passage is. This is, let's take a peek at God's calendar. Let's see what he's got coming up. That's what he says in verse 11. He says, you know the time. You know that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep because salvation is nearer to us now, today, than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. It is on the threshold. And Paul's, it's as if he's saying, come, come on, let's take a look at God's calendar. And the next thing on his calendar, the very next item on his to-do list is to fully and finally finish this thing that he started in Jesus' death and his resurrection. The next thing on his to-do list is to bring to completion what he has already accomplished and already secured for us in Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in the world. All right? Uh, that's what's going on in your friendships and your relationships and your family, in your neighborhood. That's what's going on in this city. But the question is, so what does that mean for how I'm supposed to live today? So if that's what's going on in the world, <laughs> what does that mean for how I relate to the people in my life? How, do I, how I relate with the tasks in front of me and my job and my, my, uh, all the relationships that I manage, my schoolwork I have to do. If that's what's going on in the world, how should that shape the way I feel about stuff as I encounter it today and how I think about the stuff in my life? And he tells us two things. Uh, he says, it, it, um, if this is what's going on in the world, then there's a task that's in front of us, particularly a debt that needs to be paid. And then also, we need to be dressed appropriately. He tells us what we ought to be wearing as we step out into this day. So those are the two points. You see them there on your outline. That's kind of how we're going to get into it this morning. Uh, but first, our debt of love. He tells us there's a debt that we need to pay. Verse 8 says, Oh, no one anything. And now, if we were reading straight through the verse right before this, which I didn't print, but it's, it's in verse 7, he has just said, Pay everything, pay all whatever it is that you owe to them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes, revenue, honor, respect, whatever it is you owe, you pay it. And now he immediately says, So owe nothing to anyone except. There's one exception, except to love each other. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying we owe love to one another. We are in a love debt. He's saying I am indebted to you in a very real way. And you are indebted to me too. Um, you actually owe me love. And I owe love to you 
as well. And that is a debt that none of us will ever pay off. We will be working towards that debt for the rest of our lives. We will never get out from under that debt. Incidentally, it's not a debt we ever want anyone else to get out from under towards us, right? We don't ever want the other folks in our lives to be like, paid it off. You need no more love from me. And um, as I was sitting with this this week, it just was striking to me how countercultural this is. Um, it is natural for most of us to think, I, I think, uh, most of us naturally think that love is something that's earned. It's right alongside of things like respect and honor. You know, it's like, oh, you, you need to earn my respect. You need to earn my honor. You need to earn my trust. And similarly, we think you kind of need to earn my love. Incidentally, the Bible also has some challenging things to say about who we owe respect and honor to. But, um, but like we are, the way we think about love towards others is, it's like, okay, sure, I'm not allowed to harm you. I can't bring harm to you, but I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you anything until you've given me something. Right? That's how debts work. Right? I'm indebted to you because you gave me something, and so now I need to pay it back. And so until you give me love, I don't owe you anything. So how can Paul say that? This is like he's using debt language. How can Paul say as a blanket statement that we all are in a love debt to everyone? And the reason is because we've already received infinite love. We have received an infinite, bottomless amount of love from God, our Heavenly Father. And he says, here's, in a sense, how you repay that. I'm going to want you to show love to others. Show that same love, the infinite love, show that love to others. That's what you owe them. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, but I can't pay back infinity. Um, that's a debt I'm not going to get out from under. Certainly not anytime soon. We will never, not a single one of us will ever get to a point where we will say, I have shown you enough love. I have adequately repaid the love that my Heavenly Father has shown you. We don't get there. But here's, this is, it, this is getting at this critical, crucial, foundational biblical truth that we I don't think any of us can hear this enough because we get this confused all the time. It's natural in our hearts to get this confused. So if you miss everything else, please don't miss this. Here's how love works, biblically speaking, and in God's economy. God's love precedes our love. God's love is the measure for our love, but His love always precedes our love, and our love flows out of His love to us, to His creation. Our love, whatever love we give to others is rooted in and grows out of His love. And do you see, like already we see, this is the light of Christ's redemptive work shining into the present moment, right? This is, this is that light of the distant stars that we see. This is the light of Christ shining in right now. It's like the love of Jesus Christ is what we are witnessing and seeing as he shines into our lives and says, love one another. This is the light of Christ on display. It's not a new thing, though. It's not 
This is not a new command um, that happens all of a sudden with Jesus' death and resurrection. It's curious to me always that Jesus, just before he was crucified, says, a new command I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, which is so interesting because it's an old command that you should love one another as I have loved you. And so it's in a sense new, but in another sense old. This has always been the story. I think one of the best examples of this is the story of the Exodus. This is like the deliverance story of the Bible up up until Jesus and his death and his resurrection. The Exodus story where God's people are enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And where does it start? It starts with God hearing his people's cry for mercy and loving them and having compassion on them and seeing them in their helplessness and placing his love on them and thus delivering them. And then after he delivers them out of slavery, he says, now here's what I want you to do. Love me and love one another. He does not give the law until after he has demonstrated and proven his love for his people. And it's as if he's saying, when he gives them the law, he's sort of saying, now here's how you love me. Let me show you how, like I know you want, I know that it is your desire to love me and to show me love, but you need to know how, so here's the law. And that's what, I mean, that's what Paul says. He says, the one who loves one another, this is verse 8, one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The whole law. And he's just echoing there what Jesus had also said, what we heard earlier from Mark chapter 12, which Jesus himself was just echoing what we've already heard from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. So you want to understand what all, all of God's law is about? It's summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. This is the light of Jesus' love shining in to our present experience as he calls us to love one another and to work towards our debts. We kind of tend to think that that love and law, I think, are are contradictory. It's almost like love's this, this... natural organic outgrowth from from my heart but the law is this like cold impersonal i'm just doing what i'm supposed to do type of thing and like so you got love and law if they're not contradictory they're at least just two separate planes not dealing with the same stuff um but the question is how am i supposed to love you so if I, if, I, if I owe you a debt of love, how am, I supposed to, how am I supposed to love you? What's that supposed to look like? How am I supposed to love my neighbor? How am I supposed to love my family, uh, my friends, my church community, whoever? How's that supposed to look? I mean, it looks like a ton of things. You could list off a ton of laws. Paul mentions a few here. He's like, well, for one, it means being faithful in marriage. Uh, it means protecting one another's life and, the, and, and, and well-being and pursuing well-being. It means uh, respecting what belongs to other people. It means guarding the affections of our hearts and refusing to indulge our instinct to desire what others have. That's what coveting is. So like he lists off, these are just a few of the Ten Commandments that he lists here. Right? Here's what it looks like. 
don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. And then he says, and any other commandment, they're all summed up with this, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. In a sense, what, what God's law gives us is like railroad tracks for love to run on. It's like, you're, look, you're going to think you know where this love ought to take you. These are the tracks. But the next question our hearts want to ask, because we just want to make this attainable. We just want to be like, all right, I wanted some rules, but I want it to be like, you know, within reach here. Like an infinite debt of love sounds like, man, that's going to be tough. So instead we want to ask, well, just tell me who my neighbor is then. Right on. I'll work towards paying my debt of love to my neighbor. Tell me who my neighbor is. And, uh, of course, if you're familiar with the Gospels, that's the story that the, I mean, that's the question that that expert in the Old Testament law asked to Jesus. And we're, we're told there's this little parenthetical statement. It's like, he's desiring to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, and this is the same impulse we have. He says, okay, Jesus, yes, you've spoken rightly. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. Good job, Jesus. Um, so who's my neighbor? And uh, if you know the story, Jesus tells him a story, classic Jesus fashion. He doesn't answer the question directly. He tells a story which ends with a question. And he says, well, okay, here's the situation. A guy was attacked and mugged and robbed and left for dead on the side of a road. And a priest walks by, and he doesn't do anything. And then a Levite walks by, and he doesn't do anything. In other words, two guys who knew the commandments of the law very well. They knew that they were to love their neighbor, but they passed on by. And then a third man comes along, and he's a Samaritan, which is someone, by the way, that probably this expert in the law would have considered not a neighbor. <laughs> um, certainly would have looked down on him. But this third man, this Samaritan, walks by, and he helps the man. He binds up his wounds. He gives him lodging. He pays for his expenses and provides for his needs. And so Jesus asked the question, which one of these three proved to be a neighbor? In other words, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking who's my neighbor, and I'm asking you, who are you going to be a neighbor to? And again, this is the light of Christ's work shining in to our present moment. Jesus himself came to be our neighbor, to be a neighbor to us. Jesus drew near to us when we were as good as dead on the side of the road. We had no right, we still have no right in ourselves to claim Jesus as a neighbor, but he came to us and became to us a neighbor, and he loved us and he rescued us. Jesus said to that law expert, so go and do likewise. Go be a neighbor. Second thing here that Paul presents us with is something we're supposed to wear. Here's what it looks like to dress appropriately for the daytime. Again, listen to verse 11. He says, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. 
Isn't that beautiful? Um, I, I don't know what this says about me. It probably says I'm a hopeless extrovert. But I used to, for the longest time, I, I didn't like wearing a watch uh, for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons was I just kind of enjoyed stopping people on the sidewalk and asking them for the time. And I'm sorry. I've, it's unnatural and not abnormal. But um, I didn't do it if I didn't need to know the time. I wouldn't just do it for fun. But it was, I like, it was a little interaction. And you get to stop somebody and say, excuse me, do you have the time? And that all went away when everybody had a smartphone or any kind of phone in their pocket because folks are like, yeah, right, you know what time it is. Just get it out of your pocket. So I've stopped doing that for the past, like, 20 years. But I used to love doing that. Um, Paul's saying you don't have to ask what time it is. So nobody at this point should need to say, excuse me, do you have the time? He says, you know the time. You can see the dawn coming. Daybreak is here. The sun is rising. Which means it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. That's what he said. I mean, it's how you almost hear the, the voice of, of a parent calling through the bedroom door of a teenager. Do you know what time it is? Get up. It is time to be up. But he doesn't just say, wake up and get up. He says, get dressed. You know what time it is. It's time to wake up, get up, and get dressed. Take off your nighttime clothes and get dressed for the day. Did you, I don't know, when you were in elementary school, some of you still are in elementary school, and I know your answer to this question, but when you were in elementary school, did you have pajama day? I didn't have pajama day in elementary school. I don't know if that's a new thing, um, but you know, it's fun. Our kids, I don't know, once or twice a year, it's like pajama day, and you can wear your pajamas to school, and uh, it's fun. Here's the reason that's fun, is because that's not what you do, <laughs> right? It's fun because it's out of the ordinary. It's out of place to wear your pajamas in the day. And the reason it's out of place is because pajamas are not built for daytime activities. <laughs> they are not durable. They can't hold up. And when you get older, it's just plain inappropriate, which is why it stops after elementary school. <laughs> it is, it, Paul frequently in his letters describes behaviors in terms of what we wear. He's saying, take off what's inappropriate and wear what's appropriate. Um, the behavior that we have, he talks about in terms of the clothes that we wear. And here he says, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off, let's take off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And he gives us some examples, all of which are things that stand out as very inappropriate in the light of day. Types of things that you really only do at night. But it's not just about the time of day. That's not the only reason. He's not saying this is don't do this because you wouldn't do this at 10 a.m. Yes, that too. But he's saying the reason is it's not the dawn of the chronological day. It's the dawn of Christ's redemptive work. The, the day is here. This doesn't fit. And he lists off all these various forms of self-indulgence and, and lack of restraint, whether it's socially or sexually or interpersonally. 
He says, look, the day has dawned. That doesn't fit here. It's really, the picture is, is as if Jesus in all of his glory and his beauty and his radiance and his love and his mercy is standing right in front of us. And it's like, what are you going to wear? How are you going to behave in front of that? How do I step into this day, step in to my relationships, step in to my obligations? If he's standing there, what's that going to look like? And he says, verse 14, here's what you put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are invited to clothe ourselves in the one who is the radiance of the dawning of the day. He doesn't just say, so put on these good behaviors instead. He doesn't say, it's so fascinating. He doesn't say, take off these works. He does say this in other letters, especially Colossians. But he doesn't just say, take off these behaviors and exchange them for these good behaviors. He says, take off this way of living. Put on Jesus Christ himself, he is our garment. He is our covering. He is our protection. He is our righteousness. And the contrast here is just, I mean, it's as stark as can be between the behaviors that he lists in verse 13 and the beauty and purity and perfection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, which would you like to wear? Which one seems appropriate if Christ is risen? It's the difference between day and night is what it is. Maybe another way we could say it is if you are in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Him, if you have trusted in Him and come to Him for grace and mercy, then you are united to Him. That's the language Paul uses throughout this letter. You are united. You are made one with Jesus Christ. And he's, Paul's saying, don't forget who you're wearing. It is um, interesting and sobering as well, though, that the other way he describes what we are to put on is, is with the language of armor. I don't know if you noticed that in verse, whatever, I lost my place and my eyes can't fall on it. Armor of light. Um, that it's a little bit jarring because it's the picture of, it's as if we're waking up in a war. We're soldiers. This isn't just like some mom or dad calling through the bedroom door to the teenager. Do you know what time it is? It's time to wake up. This is calling into the soldier's tent. Sun's rising. Let's get up. Let's put our armor on. Um, I mean, it's the image of the light has shined into the darkness. And the darkness has not and cannot overcome it. But that's not to say it's going down without a fight. Some of us here this morning feel like we are in a war. And we feel that. And some of us feel like the battle line is drawn straight through the middle of our heart. Like even this morning as we walked in here today. And that is so easy. Um, for, for that, it's so easy for that to discourage us. Um... And there's a lot more that could be said about it, but at the very least, I think we ought to be encouraged that if we woke up this morning 
and felt like we're in a war, good news. It means you've woken up. It means you're not asleep. It means the light has dawned and day is at hand. The light has shined into the darkness and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. If you feel like you're in a war, one of the things that it means is that you have heard the voice of your father saying, my son, my daughter, get up, wake up. The dawn has broken. The light of my love and my grace is shining. He's saying, I have done it all. I have won. The victory is secured. So get up and put your armor on. And when we get up, the the face that we wake up to, if we're going with this soldier imagery, the face that we're waking up to is not the face of an angry drill sergeant with an axe to grind and something to prove. It is the face of our loving Heavenly Father and His eyes of affection and care and provision. It is the eyes of our Father who looks at us the way that He looks at His precious, perfect Son, the one to whom we are united, the one over whom He said, this is my Son, I am very pleased with Him. That's who we're waking up to. Some of us this morning, we're just discouraged and we feel defeated. Uh, Some of us are just saying, look, hey, I want to, as Paul says, put off the works of darkness. I want to take those clothes off. I keep trying to take those off. I want to put on the armor of light. I'm trying to, as he says, make no provision for my sinful flesh. But the more I try to put on the armor of light, it just feels like it doesn't fit. And I feel like I'm trying to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm just tripping over His shoes that my feet don't fit in. And if that's you, if you are just discouraged and feeling defeated, I I would say, don't, please don't miss what Paul already said in this letter and which we very much on purpose already heard this morning from chapter 8. God has done, past tense, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, with the result that, the righteous requirement of the law the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself so that that righteous requirement might be fulfilled in you and in me. There's a similar image to this this soldier image that we see uh, in the book of Revelation. And some of you are thinking, of course there's a soldier thing in Revelation. Um, but if you, uh, if you want, want some good reading for the afternoon, Revelation chapter 19, and there's this image of this, this battle, there's this picture, and there's this picture of all of those who are united to Jesus Christ drawn up like this huge army. Um, do you know the armor that we're wearing? It's white linen. That's our armor. You know where we got that? It was washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. 
you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling defeated, say, take a look at the armor that you've been invited to put on. It's been washed clean. Last thing, maybe you're weary. Maybe you're not so discouraged. You're just like worn out and you need a break. And uh, you're just kind of saying, how long, O Lord? It's a common prayer in the Bible. How long? The promise is that the day is coming. And Paul says, it is the next item on God's to-do list. It's the next thing on the calendar. The day is coming where there will be perfect rest. And every wound will be perfectly healed. And every tear will be wiped away forever. One of the things that struck me this week is this invitation here. There's these twin invitations in the Christian life. And Paul is mentioning one of them here. So on the one hand, there's the invitation to wake up, get up, put your armor on. But there's this other invitation that Jesus gives. says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. He's saying, come to me and rest, and at the same time, wake up (laughs) and put your armor on. Well, which one is it, Jesus? It's a both and. It's not an either or. Some, Some of you here aren't Christians, and we're so glad that you're here. And, uh, or maybe you're just not really sure what you think about all this. Um, often the experience uh, of, uh, often this is what it feels like, the experience of waking up. It's slow, and it's gradual, and maybe for you it feels like you've kind of been hearing somebody calling, maybe for quite some time, and maybe you thought it was a dream, but then gradually you realize, no, somebody's telling me it's time to wake up. The morning's here. And maybe it's just now beginning to register. It's not a dream. Somebody's inviting you to wake up. Um, That's the voice of your father. And he's saying, wake up. The dawn is breaking. The morning is here. The sun is rising. Darkness is fleeing away. He's saying, look, Jesus is risen. Your sin is forgiven forever. You are loved by your Father. I delight over you. I am holding on to you. I am in the business of binding up wounds and binding up broken hearts. I am in the business of giving hope to the hopeless and rest to the restless and grace to the graceless. It's time to wake up. It's morning. And the invitation is, open your eyes and come to him say here I am and to see the light of his eyes looking at you and to put on Jesus Christ that's the invitation let's pray Lord Jesus we come We come to you not because we have something to offer, but because you have caused the sun to rise in our hearts. And so we come to you. There are so many things 
that cling so close to our skin that we want to get rid of, we want to take off. And it is really hard. So in this particular moment today, would you please show, our, show the eyes of our heart the light that is breaking, that the day is close at hand. And would you transform us because of that? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.